The Midwest Crime Files is an unscripted true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss heinous crimes and how they are committed. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the Midwest Crime Files. I'm your host, Gina. I'm Chris. We're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that change them forever. Continuing on with our serial killer theme this season. Loving it. Last episode, we talked about, are some people just born evil? Yeah, we've had that whole nature versus nurture debate. And I think we came to the conclusion that it can be either or or both. Yeah, (laughs) so like we're kind of continuing on with that theme. Because today we're going to talk about Stephen File, who I believe was born to be a serial killer. Okay. Or at least that's how he ended up living his life. Stephen File was born on June 7th, 1976. He was the middle child of Gail and Roger File. Gail and Roger had an older son um, that was Roger Jr. And then they also had a daughter that was younger than uh, Stephen. So he's that middle child. The family lived in the upscale suburb of Chicago known as Palos Park. And Stephen had a pretty privileged life. From an early age, though, he demonstrated very concerning behaviors. And so that kind of brings up the question of, so it kind of brings up the question of, should his parents have known what he was going to become? Should they have seen those yeah. red flags? And I don't know. You know, when I tell this story, I want you to think about that. Like, where does the parent's responsibility lie here? Because that's going to be an issue. So, like I said, he had been demonstrating very concerning behaviors. Like what, you might ask? Well, when Stephen was seven years old, he brutally beat a classmate. I'm not talking about they got a little slapping fight. This situation was so bad that the police actually had to be called and this kid was severely beaten. That's kind of shitty. Seven years old and you're severely beating your classmate. That's like kind of concerning. Right? I mean, I, re- I remember getting into fights when I was younger, but nothing like that. Right. You like, know? This was extreme. Before he turned eight years old, Stephen set fire to the mo- a motor home because he was upset with someone in the family who lived in the motor home. So he set fire to it. The, yeah. I mean, like last week we showed like there was a progressive of steps. Mm-hmm. You know, like what he was doing to actually, yeah, okay, he was maybe born like this, but this is getting kind of out of hand kind of quickly. Yeah, and think about like a seven, eight-year-old. That's a small kid to be doing such brutal things. Yeah, and that, that's kind of what I'm talking like. That's very concerning. It's almost shocking. Police were called to get another fight between seven-year-old Stephen and another child. So multiple fights at seven years old that required police intervention. After he turned eight years old, Stephen's behavior began to escalate, if if you can imagine that. He enjoyed dropping dropping bricks off overpasses, hoping to hit the cars below. (laughs) Holy shit. Like, that's some psychopath energy. Right? Like, you're dropping bricks, hoping... To hit a vehicle with humans in it. 
As he grew older, the behavior became more violent and antisocial. At his ninth birthday party, Stephen chased another kid with an axe. <laughs> Jeez. Right? This is like, this is getting out of hand. Like, what the fuck? He became a bully. He was known for assaulting other kids in the neighborhood. And apparently this was so bad that when he was in the fifth grade, his neighbors petitioned for Stephen to have his own bus stop so that they could protect their kids from him. Jesus. Yeah, this is a violent little turd. I would say so, yeah. He was arrested that year for vandalism at the Palos Park Village Halloween party. I'm not really sure what he did, but vandalized something. Right. He, While still in elementary school, he vandalized a classmate's home with a knife and spray paint, drawing satanic symbols. This is a very young kid. Very young. And, it, and it's getting, like, worse and worse. Yeah. He taunted other students with death chants as he bullied them. Yeah, I like I, I'm agreeing with you. Like this is 100 percent a psych, like a psychopath. So like this is a kid that probably should be in some sort of counseling or getting some kind of help for mental health or like in a mental institute. Something. So like at this point, something. As a young teenager, Stevens' behavior became. More violent and more consistent, he began drinking and utilizing drugs. And so a lot of people said, like, as he became a teenager, his violence became more inward directed instead of outward directed. He just started abusing his body and doing things that just really weren't good for him. He was arrested for underage drinking and possession of marijuana. His high school friend said that he was a habitual drug user who regularly smoked weed and sometimes used LSD. His parents were concerned about his heavy drinking and drug abuse. He was the kid that other parents wanted to keep their kids away from. He was the bad influence. To say the least, he's the bad influence. So, like, what do the parents at this point, like, what do you feel like their responsibility is? To protect him, like, from others. And himself, probably. Yeah. He was not really given a whole lot of consequences. He's from a more affluent family. He had things that he needed. This was not, you know, the kid from the wrong side of the tracks. This was more of the spoiled little rich kid. Right. Stephen's behavior became more and more impulsive, engaging in risk-taking behavior. Sometimes him and his friends did what they called car surfing, where they ride on the hood of a car while another friend drives And I'm not talking like going 20 miles an hour. They're driving like 80 miles an hour with one of their friends on the roof. I'm not going to lie. I've done that. Like, but we called it teen wolfing. Oh, Jesus. Do you remember that movie? Yes. And Michael J. Fox jumps on top of the box truck and he's surfing. Like, you can blame that damn movie for that kind of shit. (laughs) I guess. But, you know, risk taking behavior. Stephen was close to his older brother, Roger. And the two often actually partied together. Roger really didn't get in as much trouble as Stephen, but they were best friends. Roger and Stephen would compete to see who could handle the pain of a lit cigarette between their arms the longest. So they're doing like self-harming sadistic shit. Yeah. But I mean, like how many people do you know that have smiley faces burnt onto their arms too, though? I don't know. I mean, I know a bunch. 
I know a bunch of like kids that are our, like kids, people that are our age that have that smiley face, and they're like, oh, because I was a dumb teenager, and we lit a lighter until it got red hot, and like, tss. yeah, I never did that. I never did. Oh well, but. Apparently, Stephen was kind of into that sort of thing. He actually broke his leg when he was 14. He was riding ATVs pretty carelessly. I mean, I can't really say a whole lot about that. Like the area we live in, kids ride ATVs all the time. And yeah, sometimes people get hurt. Sometimes they even get killed. It's not a good thing. Nobody likes it, but it happens. Uh, Roger and Steven were talked to by the police and they were given a warning when they were caught riding snowmobiles across the neighbor's yard without permission. Again, kind of a stupid teenage thing. I don't know if I consider that sociopathic. No, that's more just like, okay, you're a dumbass. Right. At a July 4th party in 1993, Steven threw a firecracker into a crowd of people. That's not even the weird part, though. When people got upset with him, he got agitated and angry. That they were getting pissed off at him? Yeah, he didn't understand what the big deal was. It was just a joke. I mean, you just threw a firecracker in the middle of a bunch of people. How is that a joke? Right. But he didn't see it that way. What's maybe even the most concerning about teenage Steven is that he was known to be extremely sexually aggressive and even forceful with girls. I mean, yeah. I mean, because God forbid, like, he keeps that out of his repertoire. Right. Like, it just seems like he, out of all the nature nurture kind of shit, like, this is some serious nurturing. I think maybe that's... And it not seems happening. like he just wasn't really given consequences. No, not at all. Stephen's parents didn't seem overly concerned with his behavior, even when he was 17 years old and he became fascinated by Adolf Hitler. Like, that's who your teenage son looks up to, and you're just like, oh, okay. Yeah. He even joined a group of kids who shared an interest in anti-Semitism. So we're not awesome. even talking like... Sometimes teenagers do shit for shock value. Right. Like, like, no, he's taking this to the next level. He's not just trying to aggravate he's his He's become parents. a little neo-Nazi. Right. They were, um, his parents, that is, were also aware that their teenage son had a hobby of killing small animals. Oh, there we go. There we go. There's that sociopathic behavior coming in. Mm-hmm. So setting fires, killing small animals, bullying. I mean, he's pretty much got the trifecta. Yeah. In fact, he often would swerve his car purposely to hit animals in the road. And Jeez. his friends said that was just kind of Stephen. That was just something he did for fun. He had increasingly disturbing behaviors that seemed largely dismissed as rebellious teenage behavior. And it just got more and more extreme. At one point, he pulled a gun and he held it on another friend's head. And again, this was just kind of written off as stupid teenage behavior. Pulling a gun and aiming it at your friend's head. No, see, that's not stupid teenage behavior anymore. Like, that kind of goes to the past, like, past that point for me. Right. And for his 17th birthday, Stephen asked for a five-inch hunting knife. His parents bought him this knife, which he started to carry with him all the time. Now, later, people would very much criticize his parents because... 
they believe that this was a warning and they should have seen it. Like this little five inch hunting knife was very inexpensive. And this was a very. Affluent family. Yes. Like Stephen had a pool table in his bedroom. So he was Zach Morris. Yeah, pretty basically. Much. So when you're that wealthy and your son just wants a cheap little five inch knife. And I'd, you know he has a violent tendencies. Yeah, the the whole point, like I don't really care. Like, yeah, it might. I if my kid wants a cheap gift, whatever. But the fact that it was a, a freaking knife mm-hmm. is the thing that bothers me. Like, we already know that you're sadistic and anti-Semitic and all this other crap, and you're harmful to animal. Like, yeah, we already know you have this troubled past. But I'm gonna get you a knife, right? And so when he turned 17 in the beginning of the summer of 93, he started, he would carry this knife with him everywhere. And he started telling his friends like how he was having fantasies of stabbing people with his knife. And his friends just kind of chucked that up to Stephen being Stephen. Like nobody seemed overly concerned. It seems like a lot of people missed a lot of flags. Yeah. It really does. And in that summer, Stephen also began dating an incoming freshman, 13-year-old Hillary Norskog. Hillary Lauren Norskog was born July 26, 1979. In 1993, she had just finished elementary school and was looking forward to her first year of high school. That summer, Hillary was five feet tall and she was a very tiny size zero, she had long waist length black hair and she was just absolutely stunning and gorgeous. She was very shy though. And that summer she stored, uh, you know, she started like coming out of her shell and spreading her wings a little bit. Gotcha. And she was the youngest of her mother's three children. And her mother was just kind of like, you know, she's getting ready to go into high school I didn't necessarily like the friends she was choosing, but I was trying to let her be a little more independent. So Hil- Hillary meets Stephen File through her friend's brother, and the two start hanging out frequently. The shy, innocent Hillary started to spread her wings, and she started to experiment with marijuana and partying with Stephen. Her two closest friends, who were going to be attending the private Catholic high school that fall instead of the public high school that Hillary was going to, got very upset with her and they started arguing about, you know, her doing drugs and and partying and hanging out with this older group and doing things that they weren't really into. But they felt like because she was going to public school and they were going to private school, she was trying to make sure she was going to have friends when school started. The girls got into a huge fight about it, um, but Hillary didn't care. She was falling for Stephen and with Stephen, she had her very first kiss. Hillary's mother was a single parent and she was very uncomfortable with Stephen and the rest of her daughter's new friends, but she didn't want to stifle her daughter's first taste of like freedom and being a teenager and, you know, that kind of thing. So she just let it go. Hillary assured her mother that Stephen and her new friends were really good people. On July 14th, 1993, Stephen and Hillary attended a party together in the picnic area of the Palos Forest Preserves. About 15 teens were in attendance at that party, and there was underage drinking, there was smoking weed, you know, it was your typical teen party. Gotcha. 
According to witnesses, Hillary was not smoking weed that night, though. Stephen and Hillary left together around 11 o'clock that night. But Hillary never made it home. After leaving the party, she failed to return home. Her mother thought she was staying the night at a friend's house, so she didn't worry until the next morning on July 15th when Hillary didn't come home. She hadn't stayed at her friend's and no one seemed to know where she was. Teens told Hillary's mom that she was driven home from the party by Stephen File. When Hillary's mom called to see, you know, if Stephen knew anything, Gail File answered the phone and she says to Marsha Norskog, basically like, leave my son alone. Actually, what she said was, quote, don't badger my son. He doesn't need this aggravation, end quote. What the fuck? So you have a teenage girl's mother calling you saying, I don't know where my daughter is. Last person that she was seen with was your son. And your instant reaction is don't badger my son. He doesn't need this aggravation. Right. And then you wonder why he's a fucking psycho. Right. I 100% agree with you on that. Like, it just seems like they just didn't make him take any accountability whatsoever. Not at all. Not at all. After Marsha reported Hillary missing and shared with the police what she knew, they decided to investigate Stephen themselves. Stephen and his parents agreed to come to the police station, and Stephen allowed police dogs to sniff his car. As they opened the front passenger door, police found a dark red liquid stain on the seat. They asked Stephen about it, and he said that he spilled Kool-Aid. Bullshit. I mean, that's just such a stupid teenage lie. It is. He allowed the cops to obtain a sample from the stain. Despite his cooperation and insistence that he didn't know anything about where Hillary was or what happened to her, the results demonstrated he was lying because that stain, that Kool-Aid stain, was human blood. Of course it was. Like, can we... Like, of course it was. Right. Like, he's a moron. Like, this is stupid. Like, like you said, it was a stupid teenage lie. Oh, it's Kool-Aid. Like, like we don't have the technology to tell you if it's Kool-Aid or not. Right. Oh, but my dog's jumping all over it. And this is a, this is a hound dog or, you know, a scent dog that's right. trained on certain things. But nope, it's just Kool-Aid. Right. An extensive ground search was conducted the same day that the lab confirmed that human blood was inside Stephen's vehicle. It didn't take long before human remains were found dumped in the field of an undeveloped subdivision just a few miles from Hillary's home. Dental records later confirmed that the remains were that of Hillary Norskog. Police arrived at the file home to arrest Stephen, only to find him airing out the inside of his freshly scrubbed car. So why they didn't impound that car right. when they found that stain? I don't know. But because, was, I guess they were waiting for. I guess the, because they I guess they needed to confirm it they, with blood. Yeah, they, I'm guessing it's because they had to confirm because they didn't know what it, what it might it might have been Kool Aid, which we know it wasn't. But yeah, you know it, that that whole innocent till proven guilty kind of thing. So he's at home scrubbing his car out. Hillary's body, which had been found on July 17, 1993, demonstrated proof of a violent attack. She had been stabbed at least 12 times, primarily in the neck and face. Her face was so badly damaged that the 
they had to use the dental records to identify her, not because she was in a state of decomposition, but because she had been stabbed in the face so many times. Damn. And they actually told her mother, you know, they didn't want her to ID her. They didn't want her to see her because of the brutality. And no parent should have to see their baby like that. Which, I mean... That, to me, as a mom, makes it even worse. Like, don't get me wrong. No matter what, if something happens to your baby, it's enough to make you sick. Right. But I think if you're going to lose a child and you can't even see a child because their body doesn't look like a body. That's fucking, yeah, that's fucked up. You're right. It just, ugh. Hillary had put up quite a fight. She had defensive wounds on her hands. Many theorize that Stephen attempted to or actually did sexually assault her, although the evidence was not conclusive enough to charge him with a sexual assault. So the the theory really that the prosecution went with was that Stephen was trying to make sexual advances towards Hillary. And when she rejected him, they believe that he flew into a rage and he just started stabbing her. In fact, you know what the murder weapon was? The hunting knife? The five-inch hunting knife he got a few months earlier for his 17th birthday. So he's arrested. He's put in Cook County Jail. And he stays there for six months. During this time that the 17-year-old kid is sitting in Cook County Jail awaiting trial for first-degree murder, his parents told the media that he, they were late letting him stay there basically because they felt like it was the safest place for him because there were some really pissed off people and I, I in would, this community. I would be pissed off too. They like, just didn't feel like, like they could safely bring him home. Like you've been a member of this community for a while and like the, they know like they saw him grow up into this monster. Right. Which by the way, like you said this is a serial killer, right? Mm-hmm. But he's in jail. No, oh, just wait. Like I like I th- like this is where it's, it's boggling my mind a little bit because you're like oh this is another serial killer to part of our series but he killed somebody and he's in jail. Well, you gotta wait for the rest of the story, babe. And so while they're getting ready to pull him out of jail and post his bond because they are wealthy. His parents petitioned to be able to move to Indiana because they don't want the bad publicity. They don't want the criticism. They want to kind of get away from it a little bit. His parents stood by him. Stephen said he was innocent and his parents and his brother and sister, they seemed to believe him 100%. His parents eventually posted the enormous bail and they brought their son home. Their petition to move out of Illinois was denied, so they ended up moving instead to Crete, Illinois, which is in neighboring Will County. So they just moved a little bit south. Here, Stephen was still pretty socially isolated, though. Um, He did not attend school while out on bail because his parents didn't want him, like, around negativity and people judging him. Okay. So they hired him private tutors. They tried to shield him from society as he waited for his adjudication. So this is a 17-year-old out on bail for first-degree murder. And 
his parents are still coddling him. It sounds like it. While out on bail, Stephen did manage to sneak away with his brother to some parties. At one, he scared some girls by telling them he was on trial for murder. He thought that was funny. Awesome. He was bragging about it. At another, he randomly fired a shotgun in the middle of a party. One of his friends said that they took the gun away from him because they didn't want things to get out of hand. Jeez. What the fuck? And I'm assuming nobody called the police because this was an underage party, but what the fuck? Right. Like, if I'm sorry. I don't care. If I'm 17 years old and I know that that 17-year-old over there is wanted for first-degree murder and is out on bail and he's shooting a fucking gun around. Right. I'm calling I'm, the cops. I'm fucking calling somebody. Right. Like, it's just insane. The file family stood by Stephen, though, and they were all convinced that he was being falsely accused. Fucking blind. Right? On March 17th, 1995, Gail and Roger File left to go to a St. Patrick's Day party in Chicago. So they're going out drinking okay. with their friends. Stephen and Roger were home with their younger sister. The brothers spent part of the night drinking alcohol. And then Stephen said he went to his bedroom to smoke some weed. That was fitting. Perfect timing. After he got high, Stephen said he went back to Roger's room and he went in his brother's closet and retrieved a baseball bat. Stephen later said he wasn't sure why, but he just started swinging the bat and he started swinging it on his brother's head. Fuck. Stephen stood over his 19-year-old brother and savagely beat him to death. Roger started to convulse, so Stephen stopped swinging the bat, convulse meaning he's having, like, seizures, and he said that he didn't want his brother to suffer, so according to him, he was being merciful. He was not being merciful. He went and grabbed a meat cleaver, and he hit his brother Roger across his throat with the meat cleaver once, killing him. Awesome. Awesome. Isn't that wonderful? After he killed his brother, Stephen went to his sister's room. For what is believed to be as long as four hours, Stephen sexually assaulted his younger sister. Fucking, like, bastard. Like, this is a fucking animal. Mm Mm-hmm. It's believed to be up to four hours that he was assaulting her. His sister eventually called 911 in the early morning hours of March 18th. When police arrived, Stephen was not home. He had left with camping gear and three rifles. He left a note for his parents, and in the note, he wrote, quote, Now I know I am responsible for two murders, end quote. So not only did he confess to his brother's murder, but he confessed to Hillary's murder as well. And so these parents that are, like, sticking by him, and his brother, who was stood by him, like... He just slapped them with, like, this is the ultimate slap in the face. They're taking his side, they're having his back, and he kills their other son. For no reason. And then sexually tortures his younger sister. Like, what the fuck? Stephen spent five or six hours just basically driving around aimlessly, and then eventually he went to the Creek Village Hall, knocked on the door, and surrendered himself to the mayor. He told the mayor that he was in trouble and people were looking for him. Upon his arrest, his bond on the original murder case was revoked and he was returned to Cook County from Will County. 
In Will County, Stephen was charged with the first-degree murder of his brother and two counts of sexual assault against his sister. The sexual assault charges were dropped at the request of the file family. Fuck you. Fuck you. Are you fucking kidding me? Uh-uh. Like so those if parents he's 17, need to be, his sister's probably 15, 14. His, those parents need to be fucking shot. Right? Like, that's fucking ridiculous. Like, you can't, you can't fathom that your son is this fucking way when you've grown up fucking seeing it. Right. And it's, are you fucking kidding me? My thought is, not that I agree with it, because I don't. My thought is, maybe they believe since he was going to jail for two murders that they could save their daughter from having to testify about what happened to her. I'm hoping that was That's what their, I'm hoping. I'm praying that was their motivation. But it seems like they consistently tried to make things go away for Steven. So then you wonder, like, was this just another way of trying to make things go away for their son? Or were they trying to protect their daughter? And that's a possibility. That I'm they hoping they were trying to protect their daughter. I'm hoping they were trying to protect his their daughter. And just figured two murder charges, he's going away. We don't need to put her through this. Right. I'm that's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm praying was the motivation behind them insisting. And quite frankly, I'm surprised that the DA listened because most of the time in certain cases like this, they don't really give the family a choice right this was terrible in 1995 minors were still eligible for the death penalty in illinois and stephen file really wasn't big on getting the death penalty so he arranged a plea he pled guilty to the murder of hillary norskog and received a 100 year sentence in october of 1995 he entered a plea of guilty to the murder of roger file he was given a life sentence with no possibility of parole for killing his brother. Psychological evaluations determined Stephen was not mentally ill, but he was rather remorseless and cold. Didn't give two shits even after the fact. So, like, being a sociopath isn't considered a mental illness? Not really, no. That's... He is a sociopath who many believe was born to be a serial killer. Now, technically... He falls a murder that's, short. That's what I was saying, because I was like, I mean, I thought serial killers had to at least have three under their belt. Technically, they do. But I could definitely... However... This motherfucker was going to kill numerous people. Exactly. Like, I included him because I truly believe that had he not been caught, he would have killed more. I mean, he has no conscience. He does not care. Yeah, there is no remorse in this man's body. So regardless of whether he killed two or not, you know, he didn't kill his sister, but he might as well have. Yeah. I mean, he was a serial predator, even oh, if he wasn't a serial killer. I would, I would definitely classify him as a serial predator. For sure. Easily. So even if we can't technically label him a serial killer, I believe he was born to be a serial killer. I think he would have if he wasn't imprisoned. He's currently housed in the Hill Correctional Center. He is currently 47. He spent nearly 30 years in prison so far, and he has no possibility for parole. So Stephen File will die behind bars. Good. Following the conviction of Stephen, who remains in prison with no chance of parole to this day, Marsha Norskog filed a civil suit against the File parents for failure to supervise Stephen and failure to intervene as a result of the numerous red flags in Stephen's history. 
The case went on for years, with the last update I could find being in 2001. As of 2001, Stephen's parents were fighting to keep his mental health records private and suppressed from evidence in the civil case, and they actually won their motion, and mental health providers said that this was a win for patient privacy and that if if those records can be subpoenaed, then their patients aren't going to be open with them because they don't have right. any trust. So according to mental health professionals, it's a good thing they were not able to have those and records like, opened. And I kind of agree with that. I, I do too, but as, I also a, understand where Marsha Norskog wants answers because this guy was psycho from like age seven on probably before that that's just the stuff that's been reported oh yeah and you know he's kind of like david moss that we talked about last week like a lifetime of antisocial, violent dangerous behavior yep at and, least and, and, it, and it but with i wonder because it since the parents are trying to suppress his mental health records and everything what did they know what did they know I guarantee you they knew a lot more than, than what they're sharing. leading on. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm sorry, but your son had, like, had shown all this shit. Right. And so I couldn't find any updates about the lawsuit after 2001. So I'm not 100% sure if this was ever settled or was it dropped. I really don't know. If anybody has that information, please let me know because I'm dying to know what happened. Right. Me, yeah. Um, but do you think that... Gail and Roger File Sr. share some culpability in these crimes that their son committed. They bought him the knife that was used as a murder weapon. It's true. I've bought my son a pocket knife, though. If he goes out and uses that, am I liable? Do we have documented history of him being a sociopath? No, we do not. I So, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Like, that's the difference in this case. I've known plenty... Like, there's... I mean, hundreds, we, we live in a rural area. We've got kids that have their own hundreds, shotguns. Hundreds and thousands and hundred thousands of kids get pocket knives for Christmas or Boy Scouts or whatever, you know, and they don't go out. And, well, I guess the Boy Scout thing, I can't say because there are a lot of Boy Scouts that are murderers. But you know what but I'm saying? But it's a five inch hunting knife. I mean, he could have been a hunter. If he was a hunter, that was appropriate. He's I not don't a, know I, if he was ever a hunter, I, though. It, yeah, with his car, apparently. Yeah, that's creepy as shit. You know, like, I don't agree. Like, I think there is some culpability with the parents at this point. But I don't know if it's enough to, like, make it a civil, like, a civil suit out of it. Yeah, I don't know. I definitely think that they sugarcoated things. And a lot of people criticize them for going out on... St. Patrick's Day when their son's at home out on bail for murder. <sighs> I, I I agree with that. I'm sorry. This kid, like, you... But they were also probably under the impression, oh, he didn't do a damn thing. Right. Our, our son can do no wrong. He can't do, like... Our son's shit doesn't stink. Well, you have your two teenage sons that feel comfortable drinking and smoking weed in your house. Right. Seemingly unchecked right I, I don't know i don't know how i feel about it i feel like his parents definitely did not do him any 
They didn't do him any favors. Like, it seems like in last week's case with David Moss, everybody kind of felt like his mom was so horrible because she just basically tried to get, get him out of her life. This is sort of the opposite. They tried to make everything perfect for him. Right. Like, which is better? I think the right answer is neither. Somewhere in between. Right. But, but that's the... Th- that's the main distinction, though. Like, at least last, like in last week's case, she sent him to like a mental health place. Right. Like she understood that hey, there's something up, there's something wrong with him that, that I can't, I can't handle. handle. Mm-hmm. These parents are like, oh, there's nothing wrong with him. Our son is like he's divine. just been a bully since he was seven to the point that the community petitioned to have him have his own <laughs> damn bus stop. Right. He was such a dick. I, I'm sorry, but when you get your own bus stop, something's. I thought you were going to say, like, at first I thought you were going to say he, he got his own bus. And I was like, okay, that's fucked up. Will that be you know? worse? But, I mean, it's just as worse that, like, no, he gets to stand a thousand feet that fucking way so he doesn't mess with my kids. Right. And this poor girl, like, okay, so at first I was like, man, he's an incoming senior and she's an incoming freshman. freshman. Okay, we can't really talk. Like, we didn't date in high school, but if we had, we would have been the same way freshman and senior right that's not the worst thing in the world but i just if and you know there's probably more to this whole he was forceful with girls oh there's I, probably I, a lot more to it there's sure probably there a lot more assaults we're not aware of right i don't know like there's a story that i read when i was researching where um, Marsha, Hillary's mom, got up in the middle of the night and Stephen was like at their house. It was like 11 o'clock at night. And Hillary was like, oh, he's leaving. He's leaving. And she was like, Stephen, you need to leave. It's late. Like, I don't know. I understand that transition from eighth grade to freshman year can be like ridiculously life changing. It was for me. I get it. But I think maybe she was too lenient with Hillary, well, but I'm not blaming her. It's no. not her fault that her daughter died. Yeah, it's like, not her fault that this kid had no remorse for anything that he did, and he had no checks and balances. Like that, and I think that's a big part of it too. He never once had to answer for his crimes. No, he didn't. Even he, like, even after he murdered her, he they, the only reason he was in jail is because the parents were like, "Oh, he needs to stay protected because oh, the outside people don't really like him right now," and that's. It seems like it was all, oh, poor Stephen. Everybody blames everything on Stephen. Right. You know who it reminds me of? It reminds me of Stephen Avery, who's everybody's always picking on him. Right. Framing him for murder and shit. Never mind the mountains of evidence. That's that Netflix special, ain't it? Uh-huh. To Catch a Killer or something like that. Uh, Making a Murderer. That's it. And we've covered that story. You guys know how I feel about that. Right now, there is a um, video series on the Daily Wire about it. It's called Convicting a Murderer, and it's kind of telling the other side that we talked about a lot when we did that episode last season, just the the amount of evidence making a murderer left out. But that's what it reminds me of, how his yeah. parents were just, oh, poor Stephen, everybody's picking on Stephen. Well, this Stephen's parents kind of did the same thing. They were affluent and had money, and they're like, oh, well, they, they he comes from our stock. He could do no wrong. Exactly. And look at those eyes. Oh, I know. He's got the sunken eyes of a of a serial killer. He does. He Even really in that does. picture, he does. When he was a teenager, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he really does. He is, again, maybe not by definition a serial killer, but he's a serial predator. Sunken eyes, it's your demise. 
I guess I'm confused about why what? he killed his brother, though. Yeah. Other than the fact that he's just a psycho. But his brother was like his biggest supporter. But I don't know. This is also somebody that sexually assaulted his sister for hours. Right. No clue. No clue. And they like there wasn't any kind of mental disorder that they found. Nope. Just you know, he's just a sociopath. Uh, yep. He has no conscience. So this was the story of Born to Be a Serial Killer, the story of Stephen File. Yep. I would love to also get my hands on his prison records and see what kind of trouble he's been in. Yeah. Because I guarantee you he's not a model prisoner. You can't find that on like Judici or something like that? I might be able to um, if there were actually criminal charges. But there was nothing in his, um, when I looked him up on IDOC, there was nothing else that he was given any like prison sentences gotcha. for. So, but you know, hasn't killed you, anybody in prison yet. If you guys want all the information that Gina uses to write these amazing stories, head to our website. It's www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. You can find the most recent blog post and on that blog post at the very bottom are all the links Gina has associated because she's a nerd and writes that way for <laughs> each of the stories you can also see the pictures that Gina has posted of this fine fine gentleman this. and if you guys want to you guys can head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Midwest Crime Files and become a supporter we just put out an episode last week for the for our patrons and we'd love your support. Anything from a dollar to ten dollars would be perfect. Also, make sure you like and follow us on Facebook. That's where you're going to get the most up-to-date information. Oh, yeah. And we got a TikTok page. Yeah, yeah. apparently we do have a TikTok page. Yeah, Gina's not too thrilled on it yet, but I'm going to bring her around to it. <laughs> Anyways, guys, thank you guys for tuning in this week. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye.